We now come to our Sunday morning Bible reading, <coughs> taken from John chapter 13. <coughs> reading from John chapter 13, starting at verse 1 through to 17. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realise now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Good morning. I'm just a little bit croaky this morning. So you might see me diving down to take a glass of water from time to time, but don't be embarrassed. We're in a season where we're looking at the names and titles of Jesus. And so far we've looked at the Son of Man, Christ, the one who loved us, and image of God. Wonderful titles. Today I just want to introduce you to a name for Jesus that actually was in common uh, conversation. You sort of might wonder, well, how did they refer to Jesus when they were just talking amongst themselves as disciples or followers of Jesus? And you might think, well, that's really rather odd. Um, he's Jesus. You know, they must have called him that. And I want you also, by the way, just to put you in the mood, I, I just ask you to start off with just suppose for a moment you, that you were at the house in Bethany. You were there for a meal. It's the house where Mary and Martha live. 
And they were quite good at hospitality. Jesus and the disciples would pop in from time to time to relax and have a meal. And suppose you were there and you were at the meal table. You heard the conversation going on. But you might then find that actually Jesus is at one end of the table and he's got the bread and someone wants the bread sent down the table. How are they going to refer to Jesus? What are they going to call out? send the bread down the table. Now I'm going to be saying the Son of Man or Christ or the one who loved us or image of God. These are wonderful titles but they're not in normal conversation. And you might think, well this is madness. Why would we want to know? Well I tell you, you can learn some things from it and we'll find out a little later. But you almost, you, you may also say, well they'd have called him Jesus. Of course. Jesus. It came by heavenly command, didn't it? It was in a dream that Joseph had. You must call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And indeed, the Bible, is, the, 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 the Gospels, were all about Jesus. What Jesus did. Jesus went here, Jesus went there. Jesus said this, Jesus said that. Jesus healed, Jesus prayed. It's all Jesus. So, isn't that what they'd have called him? Well, of course, the striking thing is that actually, if you want to know what they called him in daily conversation, it's not sufficient. You just look at the narrative. The Gospels were written a little while later, and the Gospel writers were writing an account. And yes, repeatedly, they used the name Jesus. But the trick is you've got to start reading the Gospels all over again. You get a Bible on your knee and you turn over the pages, but this time you focus at what's inside the inverted commas. This is where the Gospel, the gospel writers are seeking to be truthful to the spoken word, what was actually said at the times. And if then, looking at what's actually inside the inverted commas, you look at how they discussed Jesus, or how they called him in the course of his ministry, you discover something rather remarkable. They never called him Jesus. It just doesn't appear. It's not there. There's one or two exceptions, which we might have time to talk about, but generally, they don't call him Jesus. It's as though, in the course of his ministry, the name is shelved in some way. So what do they call him? Well, let's be that fly on the wall in the house at Bethany. But on, on another occasion, it's a sad one. Lazarus has been ill. He's the brother of Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha had sent word out, get Jesus here soon, please. He can heal Lazarus. But of course, in the event, Jesus doesn't turn up as quickly as they had wished, and Lazarus died. Now, we don't need to go through the story, because I'm sure you're very familiar with it. It all comes out very well in the end. But just note, what did uh, Martha say when Jesus arrived? He slipped in, and Martha called her sister privately and said, The teacher is here. It's not Jesus, it's the teacher.
Let's look at another occasion. I just love it. I, I could, by the way, I could go on for hours on this. We could now work our way systematically through all the things that would fall inside inverted commas. But I'm just going to pick out a couple of occasions. I just love that time when all the disciples all piled into a boat. And they're going to cross the lake. And Jesus, Jesus is taking the opportunity to have a bit of a rest, and he's lying down, and his head's on the pillow, and he's dozing off asleep. And there's a frightful storm. Gosh, the waves are breaking over the boat, and a terrible plight. They are scared. They assume that very shortly they're going to be drowned. They're going to be on the bottom. And Jesus sleeps on. What are the words that they all cry out in. They realise that the only chance that they've got of surviving is actually get Jesus away and get him to do something. Now what's, what do they say? They don't have time. They're about to drown, okay? They don't have time to check out the name on his birth certificate. They just cry out, Teacher, don't you care that we're about to die? It's Teacher. It's teacher again, spontaneously. They just cry that name out, teacher. I warned you I could go on with examples. I'll just finish with one more. I think it's rather a poignant moment. Mary Magdalene is looking to revisit Jesus' tomb. And three days earlier, this dear woman dearly fond of Jesus she had stayed with Jesus until he breathed his last she was there throughout and she had witnessed Jesus' crucifixion she doubtless was traumatised by it as we all would have been it was an extraordinary thing to see the one that she loved so cruelly put to death. And three days later, she finds herself, probably still, overwhelmed with grief. And I don't know quite what was in her mind, exactly what she was hoping to be able to achieve, especially with a sealed tomb. But in the event, she found herself amongst the tombs, and the grave was open, as you know, and a man is behind her. And you, again, you probably know the story. She thinks that he's the gardener. But he just says one word to her. Mary. And it says here, in John, she turns towards him and said in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Do you know, it's crazy, but when I was a young Christian, I think I was a little bit disappointed that she said that. I somehow thought, well, you know, could she have dropped to her knees and said, my Lord and my God, or something really rather more special. But John is quite keen that we should fully understand that she said, Rabboni, this means teacher. It's quite specific. And, you know, I think it's really rather remarkable. It's so human, isn't it? It's got to be the most unrehearsed moment in history. She hadn't expected to, to be the first person to see someone who had been victorious over death. 
How could you rehearse that? She hadn't gone with a speech. Just out of her lips, routinely and reflexively came what she had always called him, teacher. So there we go. That's it. They'd somehow shelled the name Jesus. Why did they call him teacher? Well, does it really need explanation? Except this. That I, I've read the Sermon on the Mount for what must now be 60 years. I remember studying it for Scripture Union exams in the 1950s, cramming for the exam. And I think that we all suffer from the risk of familiarity. We study the Gospels. That's good, but it does mean that with the affliction of time, we get maybe, we, we get a little bit distant from the impact of what it must have been like to be there when Jesus first preached the Sermon on the Mount. Going to any of the teaching that he came out with. It must have been stunning. It must have been electric. To hear the wisdom, the authority, and the power with which he unfolded. God, righteousness, right, wrong, kingdom of heaven. It all came pouring out. Can you just imagine what it must have been like? before him. Yes, they had the Torah, they had the law, they had the prophets, and we study them. They are, of course, magnificent. But people were still searching out, what was God like? What is good and bad? How do we get to a kingdom of heaven? Is there one? The Sadducees still weren't sure. But Jesus came. And he spoils us with the most amazing expositions. It's all there. Here we are, right by my side. It's all in here. And, and the truth is, how often do we leave it on the shelf? Because in a sense, it's familiar. We, we know it. We've read it. So for them, first and foremost, yes, he was a teacher. Doesn't need dwelling on. It was obvious. Why didn't they call him Jesus? Why not? I think it's, I know that it's not strictly within the scope of what we're considering, but it's worth just, I think, working it through. They knew he was Jesus. Right at the beginning of his ministry, for example, um, Philip found Nathaniel and introduced him to Jesus with the words, This is Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. And if you like, bookending the ministry of Jesus was that extraordinary um, little bit of narrative. It was when two people are walking up a road. They were on a bit of a journey. And this really strange, this stranger, a rather an odd fellow, seems to join them. And they didn't know him. They didn't understand why he was walking alongside them. By the way, it was on the road to Emmaus. And the fellow didn't seem to know what had been going on. 
about Jesus. And one of the followers said, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have been happening these last days? What things, he asked. The things that happened to Jesus of Nazareth. So they knew the name Jesus, but they didn't use it. It was teacher. I think they didn't quite get the name. I think that in the course of Jesus' teaching, it was his astonishing teaching skill that of course was paramount. They were basking in it. They were just longing for the next parable. They were voracious, if you like, just to hear the next piece expounded on, wouldn't you? But I don't think they understood what Jesus meant. I don't know, necessarily, if they'd heard Joseph's story, how it was that an angel had appeared to him. You shall call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. You'd be forgiven for thinking that perhaps the angel had come and said you should call him teacher because he'll make sure his followers are thoroughly taught. And yeah, they didn't get it. And I think it's because maybe they thought that Jesus was going to teach them into the kingdom of God. The fact that he was the son of God, the lamb of God, that he was going to be nailed to the cross for your sins and mine. That he was the fullness of the Godhead bodily upon a cross reconciling the world to himself. That astonishing final triumph over death with death and resurrection of Jesus was something they just hadn't seen coming. And we know that on several occasions Jesus did actually explain it to them but it's as though they were deaf to it. They just didn't understand what the real thing that Jesus was about. I said, didn't I, that there were exceptions to the Jesus in inverted commas. It's quite interesting, actually, that the group that actually called him Jesus addressed him as Jesus were the demoniacs. What do you want with us? Jesus of Nazareth, are you here to destroy us? And again, another one. When he saw Jesus, he threw himself down on his feet and shouted, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, what do you want with me? Satan knew the significance of the name Jesus. That was always apparent. The demoniacs must have known that there was something far more powerful going on here than just another eloquent teacher. But anyway, there we go. So Jesus was teacher. What does it all mean to us? By the way, before I move on, I should say, of course you do realise because the gospel narrative did, of course, refer, refer repeatedly to Jesus outside the inverted commas, the penny did drop. We then had Pentecost. And we had that moment when Peter, full of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, stood up and preached to the people all about <coughs> Jesus. 
Finally, it's there in place. They have lived with this remarkable teacher, but finally the full mission and purpose of Jesus was made good. And they understood that he laid down his life for them so that they may indeed know the kingdom of heaven. And so finally the gospel writers in the narrative fill it with Jesus, the one who will save these people from their sins. But yes, what does all this mean to us? What does it mean to us that Jesus was the teacher? You know, I think here we've got a bit of a handicap. If familiarity is one, here's another one. I think in this particular case, what we've got as a major problem is all the baggage we drag from our time in school. What does teacher mean to you? I cast my mind back 50 years and more and I'm back at Trafalgar Road Infant School and Greenway and I'm now sitting in the classrooms at what was the grammar school of Colliers and there's the person out the front and there's the physics teacher who's hammering on about physics and you're getting it all down and you're cramming for your O-levels and your A-levels and everything else. That's teaching, as far as we're concerned. It's an academic sort of thing, isn't it? You just cram your head full of knowledge. That's what a teacher is. And actually, just taking that example of the physics master out the front that I happened to mention, it was only ever sufficient that all we had to do was stand up the front and talk physics. This wasn't a physicist who was trying to produce another physicist by emulation. It was all about the facts. But the whole point is that when in Scripture they're talking about, in, in the Gospels, they're talking about Jesus as teacher, these people were not alumni of Nazareth County Primary School or Galilee Sixth Form College. Okay. What did they have in mind? Now look, at this point, I hope you don't mind, I'm just going to take a few minutes to take a bit of a turn I'm going to get into a little bit of a secular piece just to explain. And I hope you'll bear with me, because in truth, I've grappled with this, and I think it's the only way that I can get over a few thoughts and ideas that are in my head about what teaching was all about in the mind of the disciples. I happen to be from a long line of blacksmiths. Yes, there's someone do you remember Wickersham Road? Yes, there you go. Someone remembers Wickersham Road in Horsham. Bulldoze when Albion Way was put in. How dreadful. In the 19th century, if you had horses, and there were plenty around, and it was whatever, whether it was the transport or heavy horses, shire horses, the whole lot, there was only one place in Horsham to get your horses shot. And that was the Wickersham Forge in Wickersham Road. And the forge actually stands exactly where Park Surgery is just now. And my goodness, it was an earner. It was a busy place. Three halves going all the time. And a queue of horses out front waiting to be reshod. But at the end of the dynasty, there was one master blacksmith and one alone. And curiously, it's rather astonishing, the master blacksmith was my great-grandmother 
Betsy Wickersham. A Christian lady, she could almost hear me. She's buried just at the back of Rehoboth Chapel, just round the corner. Um, a sweet Christian lady, scarcely five foot tall, and if you had a shy horse that needed shipping, you wouldn't really think of expecting my great grand expecting to draw my great grandmother Betsy out of the crowd to do it for you. But she was the master. She was a master blacksmith in her own right. So when a young chap in Horsham, a chap called Frank Catlin, wanted to be apprenticed as a blacksmith, there was only one person he, she, he could be apprenticed to, and that was my great-grandmother. And at home, I've got the indenture documents. I've got a number from that time. And I've got the indenture for his apprenticeship. And my great-grandmother was probably quite an intelligent woman, and at the bottom of it, in lovely copper plate, Elizabeth Wickersham. Master Blacksmith. Underneath, Frank Captain, who was 14 years old, unfortunately, bless him, he hadn't yet learned to actually write his name. All he could manage was just put a little cross, a little feeble thing, on the apprenticeship document. But that was a covenant. It was a covenant where the master would take the pupil and teach that pupil whatever was needed to make him the real deal. And indeed, Betsy did just that. I've got a photo of Frank Kaplan as a mature man outside um, in the road amongst the line of horses. He's got a leather apron around him. And he's looking up to smile at the camera, briefly pausing from his work. And he's showing a horse. He's the real deal. I don't know when he's looking up, showing that horse, whether he's learned to spell his name yet. But it doesn't really matter. All he had to do was fix his eyes on the master and do whatever she did she would split bar iron and start showing him how he would fashion horses' hooves, horseshoes, how to make nails, the whole business of being a farrier. Now, that was a very long excursion, wasn't it? But I expect you got the drift. I think that when they talked about Jesus as being a teacher, it was much less about the my physics teacher and much more like Betsy. Where we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, <coughs> it's part of a demonstration that God in his grace has granted us his Holy Spirit. We're children of God. And God has granted us a covenant. A covenant. <coughs> I think as a young Christian, I would have thought that being a Christian had to do with filling my head with doctrine and knowledge. I read my, quickly read my Bible from Genesis to Revelation. By the time I was 20, I would be proud of being in the militant wing of nonconformity, an amillennialist, a four-point Calvinist, charismatic. I sort of accumulated doctrine. 
But at this end of life, I realise that that's all very interesting, but I don't think it's Jesus' priority. I think I'm a bit like Frank Catlin. I can only manage just to get a very feeble acknowledgement of my master. And what I need to do is to emulate him, to look at him, to copy him, to examine my life, to see what needs weeding out so that we become more like him. Gosh, I'm grateful to Tim Carter, bless him. Tim, my heart goes out to Tim. Tim thought when he'd asked me to preach, that actually he'd got a bit of time off duty. But uh, in the event, the first thing he got was a two-page email that was asking all sorts of stuff about teaching in Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek and what's the Greek word for this and the Greek word for that. And why the bone I am not rabbi. Bless him, he must have thought, my goodness, it'd be quicker if I just get up there and preach the sermon myself. But I am actually grateful that when he was talking to me, he did say unsolicited. The fact that actually Jesus did fit in that great tradition of the rabbi. And for rabbi, it's different, really, than just what is used, for example, of the Greek word teacher. It's much more, I think this was his word, it was to do with like apprenticeship. And I think that's true. That's what I had kind of worked out for myself. It's not crowding our heads with knowledge necessarily. We need to study scripture. We need to understand it. But mostly, we need to learn to be like Jesus. We need to be the real deal. So just finally this. What does it mean to us that Jesus was teacher? I just leave you with this point. Jesus said, you must not be called teacher. For you're all members of one family. And you have only one teacher. Please can we all find time today. Take time to quietly get aside and reflect. What do we need to learn now from him? What's he got to lead us on to be more like him? What's our next lesson? May today find each of us on our knees, pleading that God graciously, through the Holy Spirit, may have us emulate Jesus as our teacher. <laughs>